This week on the Back Table Podcast. For black and white cesarean scar pregnancies that are deep within the scar at less than 10 weeks, my recommendation for patients, because it's so deep in and because the, the diagnosis is clear, my recommendation to those patients is pregnancy termination. And a fair number of my patients don't take that recommendation. And my experience has been with six or seven cases now over the last five years is that all of those turn into terrible, what we used to call Procrito or Figo 3. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. Hi. This is Amy Park, and I'm here at Backtable OBGYN again with my co-host, Mark Hoffman. Mark, how are you doing today? Good. Clinic day. How about you? Good. Got a lot of stuff done today. And we have a very special guest today. His name is Dr. Brett Einerson. Dr. Einerson is an assistant professor of OBGYN in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the University of Utah. His research focuses on placenta creative spectrum, severe maternal morbidity, quality improvement and patient safety, obstetric and postpartum hemorrhage and cost-effectiveness. He's currently funded by the NICHD on a K-23 grant to study alternative treatments for a placenta accreta spectrum. He's a nationally recognized and internationally recognized clinical expert in the diagnosis and management of placenta accreta spectrum disorders and is the director of Utah Placenta Accreta Program at the University of Utah, which is one of the busiest referral programs for PAS in the United States. So I'm just going to go ahead and dive right into some questions for you, Brett. Tell me, like, how did you get interested in this? Like, what's your background, how your interest and career evolved along this path? Yeah, sure. Amy and Mark, thanks for having me. Excited about this. So I kind of stumbled into placenta accreta spectrum during fellowship. I had been a resident in Chicago and Northwestern and had really loved clinical obstetrics and was sort of conflicted about giving up gynecology, but loved pregnancy, really felt at home doing pregnancy counseling and research in that area. And so I chose to do MFM fellowship in Utah. Utah was a place where they see a lot of crazy stuff. And, you know, placenta accreta spectrum wasn't necessarily on my list of top five things I was most interested in coming to Utah, but thought I was going to come out here learn MFM, do some good research, and then find a job maybe back in the Midwest where I grew up doing general MFM. But during my fellowship, I just encountered a lot of cases of placenta accreta spectrum, in part because people have a lot of babies out here in Utah and access to VBAC is not all that good in the rural West. So I started seeing that these patients have really difficult cases. They have really difficult diagnosis to make. And there wasn't a ton of research informing how to take care of them. So I got really sucked in, in part because it just felt like there was a void of high-quality research. There was a challenge in taking care of these patients from a diagnostic perspective. There was a challenge taking care of patients with PAS, placenta accreta spectrum, surgically. And I just sort of fell in love with that challenge or those challenges. What's the average parity of the patients, would you say? It's funny because I read placenta accreta studies from other countries. And the median number of prior C-sections is sometimes zero or one in these studies from overseas. Our average accreta patient has at least two or three prior C-sections. And so, and I've had patients with, who've had five, six, seven, ten babies. So overall in Utah, 
family size is almost twice as large as the national average. Wow. Well, tell us, what is PAS? Like, what is the nomenclature? How do you even define it? Sure. Yeah, this is an evolving, like a lot of probably what we'll talk about today, this is an evolving area. But placenta creta spectrum has always been known to be this obstetric complication where the placenta attaches abnormally into the uterus and doesn't let go at the time of delivery. And as a result, if you force the placenta to come off when it's attached abnormally, results in significant hemorrhage that's much worse than it would be if it was uterine atony or some other cause of postpartum hemorrhage. We think placenta creta spectrum happens and starts off very early in pregnancy. Like the placenta probably attaches abnormally very, very early on in its development in an area that's scarred or damaged within the uterus. Placenta creta spectrum exists on a spectrum. There are milder cases really where the placenta is just abnormally attached. It may not even look all that different, either sonographically or physically at the time of delivery. And then there's very, very severe cases in which the placenta essentially attaches into the prior scar, totally remodels the uterus, distorts the normal pelvic anatomy, and changes the normal pelvic vasculature into kind of a super highway of blood flow. So in short, I mean, it's a it's an attachment problem and it's a remodeling problem. Kind of no matter how you think it develops or forms or is what it's caused by, the end result is pretty clear. It's a really difficult delivery that's at high risk for massive bleeding. How do you even describe it in terms of, are there grades? I don't I, I don't know. It's been a long time yeah. and maybe things have evolved. I don't think that we just had like accreta, increta, percreta. I mean, are there stages now or how do you even describe it? Yeah, this is confusing because it's changing really rapidly over the last three to five years. But traditionally, the way we describe placenta accreta was in the framework of a placenta that's abnormally growing into the wall of the uterus. And so there were different grades of placenta accreta spectrum, which include accreta or creta, which is the mildest form where the placenta is abnormally attached, but not necessarily invading into the wall of the uterus. And then in creta and percreta are progressively worse manifestations of a progressively invading placenta, where the placenta invades further through the wall. And in percreta, you can even have invasion past the serosa or into the bladder or into other organs in the pelvis. And that's really the way that the disease has been described since the mid, since the 60s or even before. The nomenclature didn't really change much for this, what used to be a relatively rare disease through the 20th and into the 21st century. Increasingly, pathologists and clinicians are noting that that description of placenta creta maybe doesn't capture what the disease looks like in the hands of the surgeon. It may look like that when the pathologist gets a specimen that we've wrestled out of the abdomen and torn out the sidewall of the uterus. But in general, the way that the disease acts in the body and at the time of surgery, in my opinion, is that the placenta attaches into a C-section scar, remodels or doesn't remodel the uterus, and really transforms and remodels the uterus. And so we're starting to talk a lot more about clinical grades, what the disease looks like at the time of delivery, if you can actually see it. And that's defined by the FIGO staging. So FIGO in 2019 came out with a stage, clinical staging that's FIGO 1, 2, 3, based on the appearance of the disease in utero, with one being essentially attachment without other changes, two being vascular appearing changes on the outside of the uterus, but no placenta extending all the way 
to the serosa and then percreta or what used to be called percreta now stage three being placenta that extends all the way to the serosa you can see it at the time of surgery underneath a thin layer of serosa and then significant vascular changes when you say remodeling can you be more specific more i guess talk to a gynecologist what what you mean when you say remodeling that's a great question so the remodeling that we think happens during placenta creative spectrum is that you've got an embryo or an early placenta that attaches into a very small area of C-section scar or other scar from prior surgery. And those cells that are microscopic at the time of implantation grow into a full-blown organ, a placenta that has to grow somewhere. And in the most severe forms of placenta creative spectrum, it's growing within a C-section scar. And so those that early placenta, which is microscopic or very small, turns into a full organ, you know, the size, you remember placentas from residency, size of, you know, a flat volleyball. Do I do remember those. <laughs> it's been a minute for me, quite a, like since 2006, really. <laughs> and it's got to grow somewhere. And so if it's attached abnormally into an, a small area of scar, it's going to stretch and distort and grow into that scar, distort the part of the uterus that it's attached to. And so remodeling to me means sometimes you open up the abdomen, what you see is sort of a snowman with two, like a, or a peanut. You've got like the baby and the amniotic fluid on the top. And then you've got this placenta that's totally remodeled the lower part of the snowman or the lower part of the peanut shaped uterus. And so it really is, we think, growth within a confined space and lack of freedom for that placenta to develop normally like it should flap along the side of the uterus. Instead of that, it's growing sort of within a confined space within the within the scar and remodeling not only the uterus, but the parametria and the bladder and the vessels in that area. I just want to shout out that Brett just published this exact thing in the Green Journal, March 2023. And I think you even appeared on a podcast or it was one of the featured articles and there's a journal club, but it was really cool. And I encourage our listeners to read it because even for me, I mean, I'm not an obstetrician anymore, but cool clinical pictures from time of surgery, imaging pictures, and the pathology, just mind-blowing paradigm shift in terms of how we conceive of placental. It's not placental invasion as much as it's the uterine remodeling part that I really thought that was very interesting. The other thing I wanted to ask you about that this point brings up is doing abstract and video reviews for all of these conferences like SGS and AGL. Treating uterine niche is so hot. It's misocele, like people are doing tons of it. And I've seen lots of different techniques. Section DNC, you can do a resectoscope, you can laparoscopically fix it, robotically fix it, lots of different ways. I've seen wedge resection, what is your take of the niches and does that work really well? What's the data behind it? I mean, presumably that's the beginning of PAS. I don't know. Yeah. Tell me. I, I mean, I love that question in part because it gets at the heart of the work that we've been trying to do, including in that study that you mentioned. The way that I have come to think about placenta creative spectrum is more a disorder of the uterus in which the placenta is sort of a not innocent bystander, but it is the, the placenta is not the offending organ. To me, the uterus or a defective scar specifically is the issue. And so it stands to reason that if we can make a better scar in the first place or fix bad scars that form after prior uterine surgery, specifically C-section, but maybe it's a cesarean scar pregnancy treatment or 
a myomectomy or a prior other intrauterine surgery, it stands to reason that, that we would reduce the risk for placenta accreta spectrum in the future. Those studies are very hard to do because following people prospectively after those surgeries would still require a ton of people to even get a few cases of placenta accreta spectrum. This continues to be a relatively rare problem, but one in a thousand pregnancies, we think. And so prospective research is really lacking and very, very hard to do outside of large multi-center, even multinational studies. My hunch is that if there is a large gaping niche in the lower part of the uterus, that that serves as a really hospitable home for a future case of placenta creta spectrum. There are some data to suggest that embryos may be more likely to implant in a large niche versus just a prior cesarean scar. But I think that data are currently lacking to overwhelmingly or full-throatedly say we should be fixing all of these or here are the characteristics of niches that we should be fixing. But that being said, I mean, people are moving forward full bore. Even in MFM, it's sort of leeching into our world. Like, what the heck do we do with this preconception consultation that comes with a, with a uterine niche or an isthmus seal? Are we supposed to be repairing those, resecting those? We honestly don't know. And so I, I look forward to researchers informing that question more because in part, I wonder, are you taking out one scar and adding another? That gives me a little bit of pause. If you take out a gaping niche and make it a little bit better, does that reduce the risk? I'm not sure that it does. So I think we need more data. The jury's still out. I'm really looking forward to the collaborations between MIS and REI and MFM and really across the breadth of our specialty to figure this question out because it's an important one. More and more patients with ultrasound being performed preconception and early in pregnancy, more and more of the time we're seeing this and we don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I was just going to comment on that because way, way back when, we were lucky to get a dating ultrasound, but ultrasound has become so much more accessible, better, I mean, in terms of the clarity, et cetera. Seems like there's just so many more C-section scar pregnancies that are getting diagnosed. And I think the at least the Cleveland Clinic has gotten a reputation for treating these. And that just brings up another question about what you just alluded to, like who should be owning this? What specialty? Because I mean, you're MFM and Justin Lappin is MFM and you guys do complex surgery. This is badass surgery, like much respect. You could tell that the residents when you came were like, this guy knows because you had all the pictures. It is like really tough surgery, but some places it's MIGS, a lot of places it's onk. You have a big collaboration with with radiology. I mean, I just had this conversation with my friend who's the upcoming president of SGO, Amanda Feeder, and we were just talking about like, should Ankh be owning PES? And I think they're kind of like, not it, but I think some of them are like, we should be doing it. So I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not part of that like debate stream. It's close to the bladder, Amy. I think Eurogon probably should be the ones to own that. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm one of those not it people. But <laughs> but anyway, it's it's interesting. It seems very local. It seems like MFM definitely is involved in some level, but you take a, a lot of ownership. You have a program. You're the director of this thing and you get a lot of referrals through this network that you have. So like, just curious about your thoughts. I think the answer to who owns this is all of us. The difficult thing is that this is a pathology and a disease that exists between subspecialties and even exists between specialties. You can be the best surgeon in the world if you don't have a good OB anesthesiologist and blood bank. You can't take good care of patients with placenta creta spectrum. And so this is a interdisciplinary, I like to say interdisciplinary. The thing that's leached in the literature is multidisciplinary, but it's really interdisciplinary care for these patients. 
And I think that there isn't one specialty optimally situated to be the future caretakers for these patients. And so it's imperative on our, on OBGYNs to, I think, be the central rallying force around getting radiology, NICU, OB anesthesiology, pathology, and the various subspecialists together to do as good a job of taking care of these patients locally and regionally. And to some degree, MFM makes a little bit of sense because it's the one where most MFMs have at least some familiarity with their imaging and interest and investment in getting the diagnosis right. But the problem, of course, for MFMs is that many of us, you know, 75% of our specialty is consultative. Many MFMs don't cover labor and delivery, much less want to perform a planned cesarean hysterectomy. And so in those cases, for the average or median MFM, it's imperative to rally a team. And so I, I sort of think about interdisciplinary care is there needs to be a, a champion locally if you're going to be a center that takes care of placenta accretus spectrum. And I know colleagues from General OBGYN who do that really well. I have colleagues from Gynoc who are that sort of team at their local institution. There's MFMs who do it clearly. There are MIS people who do that really well. But I think whatever subspecialty it is, I think that there has to be active investment in understanding the imaging and the surgery and the pathology. And so that it itself is an impossible task for one type of subspecialist and really requires an interdisciplinary approach. I mean, I think gynecologists are incredible in the work that they do, but a lot of them do not come out of fellowship having seen a ton of cases. And if you talk with our gynecologists, although they are the best situated to handle difficult pelvic surgery, a lot of them just haven't seen enough cases to be familiar with the pitfalls and the avoid the worst outcomes during a PAS case. And so a lot of their training is on the fly. Once they get out of fellowship, they get called in for these difficult cases. So to me, locally and regionally, it's about finding a team to put together who's going to really concentrate on getting better at this really difficult surgery. And that's going to probably involve multiple subspecialists. Can you just talk a little bit about your journey? Like, it's just hard, like you're saying, to get the volume, even if you're an MFM. I mean, you're a referral center, so you're getting it. But how did you get trained up? How did you assemble your team? How do you take call? Like, these are all very crucial elements. Sure, yeah. I took interest in placenta creta spectrum from a research perspective first and then figured out that clinically and surgically it was a challenge that I wanted to take on. And so midway through my fellowship, I started going to as many accreta cases as I could possibly go to. And even if I wasn't the fellow assigned to the cases as one of the surgical assistants, I was there to see the surgical team operate. And it's remarkable how much I learned from just watching cases, even when I wasn't there operating. It was like you see the the pitfalls, you see the approaches that work and the approaches that don't. And so I was able to see 25 to 30 cases during my fellowship. And, and by the time I graduated, I'd been one of the surgeons assisting on most of the cases that I had seen. And so I showed up to learn about the surgery, learn about the way that other people in the department were handling it. And the, at the time, it was mostly MFM delivers the baby, gynecologist does the hysterectomy. And there were gynecologists who taught me a lot. And at the end of my fellowship, when I said, all right, I want to build this PAS program and I want to make this as good as possible for patients. I had gynecologists who already knew me, who were willing to invest in me, who were willing to walk me through cases, who were willing to be my surgical assist for the first couple of cases that I had as attending. 
And they really helped me to do that. And at the end of about 18 months, Dave and I sort of agreed, all right, these are cases that Brett can, Brett and a small team of non-gynecologists can handle. And when things get difficult or if the disease is really bad, we'll have the gynecologist there for on backup. That's such a great point for learners, for trainees. And I think Elliot Richards said the same thing, like most of it's just showing up. Yeah. And getting into the OR and watching other people operate, watching how they get set up, watching the team, how they interact with the other people in the room, watching how they physically do the techniques to become an expert in something, you know, just sometimes watching as opposed to when you're actually in there doing it and you're really focused on a small, narrow window of a procedure, watching something can let you see a bit more of the whole thing. It's a great, great lesson there, a great story in how you went from becoming just someone to, who wanted to watch a bunch to becoming, honestly, like the expert in this. And that's a, that's a great, a great, uh, a great story. Well, I wanted to ask about the regionalization of care because that's always been a hot topic of like high volume centers and high volume surgeons taking care of these conditions. And I think that's definitely been a theme throughout Eurogyne, now for MIGS, and we're talking about plus, you know, PAS, but it's a burden for the patients. I mean, chatting about this rural West situation and I mean, what's the average travel time and how do you provide for the patients who are coming in and have six other kids at home and when do you require for them to come? I mean, it's like a big heavy lift for these families to come in. Yeah, we looked at our data on proximity to care here in Salt Lake. And, you know, the population centers are highly concentrated along the Wasatch, which is a mountain range that runs from southern Idaho, basically down to almost to Arizona. And, you know, the vast majority of people who live in Utah live within a couple of miles east or west of that range. But we looked at where our patients were coming from, and 65% were coming from more than 45 minutes away. And one of the reasons I was interested in that is because 45 minutes is kind of my distance at which my sphincter tone increases and I'm worried about that person being at home. Yeah. <laughs> like if they start bleeding at 28 weeks, I don't want them to be more than 45 minutes from the hospital. And even, I mean, honestly, you want them to be closer if they're going to start to bleed. But a full third of our patients come from more than three hours away. And so it is a unique challenge of the Intermountain West. Not unique. I mean, I have, the same is true of my colleagues who work in Arkansas. The same is true of my colleagues who even work in parts of the Midwest and even parts of the East, Southeast. So, I mean, I think that there are, wherever you are in the country, you're going to have patients that are coming from long distances. And the reality is that volume and experience almost certainly matter if PAS care mimics basically every other surgical subspecialty. And there's no reason to think that it won't, right? If you don't see something except for every couple of years, you're not going to be as familiar with avoiding the problems of PAS surgery as if you see a couple of months. And it's really our job, I think, is a, a field to figure out how to do this thoughtfully to say, all right, the best outcome is probably, well, first of all, we should show that the best outcomes are going to come at higher volume centers. And second of all, we should figure out ways to make it accessible to people who don't live near one of those places. I mean, a lot of my patients, in fact, disproportionately my patients come from places that don't have access to tertiary care medicine because they don't have access to VBAC in parts of Idaho and parts of Montana and parts of Wyoming. So it's a huge financial burden and logistical burden for them to come at 30 or 32 weeks and live in Salt Lake City for a couple of weeks and then deliver. And 
spend a few more weeks in Salt Lake City while their baby is growing and feeding in the NICU. That's an incredible burden that we're only beginning to understand. And so I don't have a magic wand to cure the problem of how do we make our hospitals fit to do this in more areas of the country, but it, but I do think that for the time being, regionalization of care is going to lead to better outcomes because of volume. How did you assemble your team? I mean, you have a interdisciplinary team and like, how do you organize it? Do you have weekly conferences? Like what are the logistics to establish best practices and review the cases, et cetera? We're only beginning to understand best practice and it's hard to make recommendations for other centers that may only see six or seven cases a year and compare like sort of their processes to a really, really busy center that's seeing multiple consults every week for placenta accretive spectrum. But I think that there are a couple things that everybody should be doing. I can talk a little bit about how we have operationalized this. To me, it's important to have formalized communication in some way. So an email, I'm sort of an email hater, so you'll have to forgive me, but email is not the greatest for interdisciplinary discussions. It's fine. And if it's what you've got, then try to optimize it. But I think that there is benefit in people getting together, looking at images, reviewing images of the surgery, talking with a pathologist face-to-face. And so what we did when I start, helped starting to formalize the program in 2018 here was get together every month and have basically a tour board for placenta cre spectrum. I know not every center is going to be able to do that, but we've learned so much from each other that I talked about how this is a problem that exists between specialties It's amazing how much a surgeon can learn from a radiologist, how much a radiologist can learn from a pathologist, and how surprised some pathologists will be upon looking at the images of what a placenta creative spectrum looks like in the body. I don't think those same realizations, the same eureka moments would have happened in an email chain. I think they, they happened because we got together and started talking about what we were seeing. When we had the diagnosis wrong, why did we have it wrong? When we encountered difficulties during surgery, this is the reason that we had them. What can we do next time to avoid this? I think there's a reason that tumor board has become so entrenched in cancer care. I think it's because it's effective to get together face-to-face or Zoom face-to-Zoom face and talk through difficult cases. And that's really what placenta accreta care is, difficult cases. They span multiple disciplines. So that's my first suggestion to people. Find a champion, whatever subspecialty it is, and get organized enough to have periodic meetings. And at a less busy center. It might not be every month like we do it. It might just be ad hoc. When you have a case coming up, we're going to meet three weeks before the delivery date and talk through it. Anesthesia, NICU, radiology, obstetrics, gynecologic surgeon, and anybody else that's going to be involved, like urology or general surgery or trauma surgery for interventional radiology. I think that's the best way to really unlock a ton of great iterative team learning at your institution. I think it also helps to centralize the number of people who are taking care of these cases. If you've got an oncology division of 12 people, it doesn't matter how busy you are, each individual, one of those 12 people is not going to see that many cases from year to year. And so my suggestion based on what we've learned is to try to get a smaller number of people really interested in taking care of these cases from the specialties that are involved. So for us, that looks like one general sort of surgically inclined general OBGYN, two MFMs who have gotten additional training in surgical care of PAS. And then preferentially, we try to target a couple of the gyne-oncologists who are most interested. The downfall of that is that if you have emergency cases and you don't have a good call system for that central team, then 
people who haven't seen this problem in a bunch of years are trying to scramble and take care of those people in the middle of the night. So if you're going to centralize care and only have a few people do the surgeries, I also think that those people should serve as sort of a call team for a credo. One mistake I made early on in my being attending was to try to be that one person on call 365 days a year. Don't do that. <laughs> find a group of obstetricians who can help do that and find a group of backup pelvic surgeons who have a little bit more interest in this problem. And I think that's the foundation of your call team as well as your surgical team for most of these cases. Thank you so much for answering my questions because I find it fascinating and I don't know how many centers there are, but I think that here at the clinic, we're building an advanced complex pelvic surgery kind of program within MFM, like people who've had ileoconduits, for example, and are pregnant or, you know, I, I think that these things are all operational best practices, truly. And it's good to learn from people who've set it up and you learn the hard way, like we all do. <laughs> but um, anyway, I, I want to circle back to like, just making the diagnosis of PAS. How do you do it? Are there any biomarkers? Are you using ultrasound, MRI? How are you even like figuring out early on that they have it? How do we do it is a is a funny question because my first response is to say very poorly. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So there is some, some equipoise in this question. <laughs> I think it's very difficult. It's very easy to miss this diagnosis. And it's very difficult to know exactly what you're getting yourself into before surgery. I think one of the disservices that our literature has done around this topic is take highly specialized centers and patients who almost exclusively have extraordinary risk for accreta and get a bunch of ultrasounds and MRIs on it and say, oh, ultrasound and MRI are fantastic for making this diagnosis. 90% sensitivity, 95% specificity, positive predictive values, and you're perfect. That's not accreta care. That's not how it exists in the real world. But, you know, an obstetrician trying to figure out if they need to make their referral to my center does not have that same specificity and, and sensitivity of the imaging that they will get in routine obstetric care. It's a really difficult diagnosis to make. And we continue to be surprised when we're wrong about the severity of disease or the presence of disease, even at a busy place that's doing multiple cases a month. And so I want to just acknowledge that part because I feel like you should have a healthy skepticism about how good your tools are. That's important. And I also think that people shouldn't feel bad when they get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. And there's something missing from our current way of making the diagnosis that we haven't yet figured out. So maybe biomarkers will be that fix. But let me sort of give you my, now that I'm finally, that's my preamble. Now I'm going to actually answer your question, Amy. I think it's helpful to split this into screening and diagnosis. So to me, it's very important for people to think about their role in general obstetric practice or even general like ultrasound practice as screening for risk, not making the diagnosis with cert. Because to me, it's very important to have a healthy understanding of risk profile, a high suspicion in patients with risk factors, and a low threshold for referral to a specialty center for a second opinion. And so if you're the average ultrasound practice not connected to a busy PAS center, I think your role with diagnosis really starts with the intake form. Does this patient have risk factors for placenta accreta spectrum? And that is at least half the battle. If the person's got two prior cesareans and they have a low placenta, it almost doesn't matter what ultrasound findings you see. That person needs a referral and an expert to take a look at their placenta if it's low over the C-section scar. And so to me, as I 
imagine the future of PAS care. I imagine ultrasound units really being screeners of risk factors and definers of placental location. And I think, you know, focusing too much on the individual signs like placental lacunae or myometrial thinning or bulging in the lower uterine segment or absence of clear space or some of the modern rail sign or some of these really in-depth Doppler findings. I think focusing on that is less important than defining the patient's risks and knowing the placental location. And in patients who have risk factors, I think referral on for diagnosis, the next phase, is what should happen. So who should get early ultrasounds, right? Because in general, folks are getting scans at 18, or anatomy scans rather, at 18 weeks. I mean, certainly people are getting dating scans early, but that's not everybody. And so is there a population of patients, like you said, screening, right? History, who should we be sending? Do we care about low-lying placenta at like 10 weeks when people are getting their nuchal screening? Or do we care about it at 18 weeks, you know, because it moves? What's hard about this, and you're sort of, you're getting at the reality that we're coming to see, which is that the cesarean scar pregnancy and early placenta accretive spectrum are overlapping pathologies that have almost identical risk factors and very, very similar appearances. I mean, I have a slide set on cesarean scar pregnancy that basically a lot of them look like mini accretas at 11 weeks. And, you know, I, I'm a definite believer in what Timor Trish sort of preaches with, is that most cesarean scar pregnancies are baby accretas, early accretas. That's what I had heard is that that's the accreta before it becomes an accreta. And that's, that it's the spectrum of that disease. Is that, is that accurate? That's our experience. And that's what I think the best available case series are demonstrating. And What's important about that, and why I love your question about who should be referred and when, is that there seems to be in the cesarean scar pregnancy literature a clear demarcation of like beyond nine to 10 weeks, the chance of hysterectomy in C-section scar pregnancy or early PAS is very high. And the risk of less invasive and uterine sparing surgeries is much higher after nine to 10 weeks. And so the United States had infinite resources, which we oftentimes pretend to have when thinking about screening. I would say that patients who have prior cesarean, as part of their viability ultrasound, they should aim to have that done at seven to nine weeks, and that a, an assessment of presence or absence of low implantation should be done. So everybody who's had a prior cesarean. Seven to nine weeks. Again, I will uh, reiterate, if, the, if we had infinite resources and an ability to know people's were pregnant at an early age, then I would love for people to have an early assessment of low implantation pregnancy at that time. I still think there's a ton of work to be done on defining what low implantation is, defining what is CSP and what is not. And so that is not going to be disseminated anytime soon. But I think in the future, people are going to recognize low implantation in patients with a prior cesarean as a significant risk factor for placenta accretus spectrum. And what one reason that I think it's reasonable to at least consider, if you're going to get a viability to to get comfortable with looking at the location of pregnancy in the uterus is, is that the outcomes are so much better for early treatment of CSP in that window. You can perform DNC or laparoscopic treatment or medical treatment and expect that that person's going to not have a major bleeding event, expect that that person will keep their uterus and be able to use it for a healthy pregnancy in the future. Whereas if you wait until 11 weeks and get the ultrasound, that's already a creta. And the patient's likelihood of having a pregnancy where they avoid a hysterectomy is very low at that point, is much, much lower. 
it's possible in some settings, but not not as not as likely. And that's my experience too. I mean, limited as the MIGS person at my institution for better part of a decade. I had an MFM who had taken care of one early cesarean scar pregnancy, he did a big X lap and it was this big and he goes, That was stupid. And then he called me and said, I want you to take care of it. And I'd never seen one. And so called a bunch of people I knew and it was not a challenging case in hindsight. And having done a few more of those, I would agree they're not super technically challenging cases for those of us that do a lot of laparoscopy. But diagnosis is one thing, and it's challenging watching those things together. And so it sort of feels like you're watching a fuse on a bomb because you aren't sure what you're looking at, but yet waiting longer, as you just told us, dramatically increases the risk to the patient. So to that was one of my big questions was, how do we counsel our patients? Because sometimes you see a low-lying placenta in a niche and it grows up into the uterus. Sometimes it turns out into what we're talking about here today. When do we intervene? When do we take that opportunity at seven, eight weeks to do something knowing that maybe it won't be an accreto? To me, there's a ton of work to be done here. And there's some interesting developing criteria for location of the early pregnancy in the scar to direct us. But all of that stuff still needs to be validated. We are really oftentimes stuck in the gray. But for the cases that are less gray, for black and white cesarean scar pregnancies that are deep within the scar at less than 10 weeks, my recommendation for patients, because it's so deep in and because the, the diagnosis is clear, my recommendation to those patients is pregnancy termination. And a fair number of my patients don't take that recommendation. And my experience has been with six or seven cases now over the last five years is that all of those turn into terrible, what we used to call Percreto or Figo 3. All of them turn into difficult cases and some of them result in very, very early deliveries, even pre-viable deliveries. And so I've had patients who don't proceed with a recommendation and go on to have a pre-viable delivery. And at that time, you know, 18 weeks, they lose their uterus because there's not good treatment options. So my recommendation for obvious growth into the scar, low implantations, obvious cesarean scar pregnancy in the first trimester is termination of pregnancy by whatever local standard there is. And those standards differ. Sometimes it's injection. Here it's like suction DNC under ultrasound guidance with laparoscopic backup. And that's been super successful for us. To me, that's one case where the risk of proceeding with pregnancy is considerable. The likelihood of taking home a baby that, that will be live born and survive is lower. And the likelihood of losing your uterus with expected management is close to 80 to 100%. In the gray zones, it's much harder to counsel patients. If it's a on the niche instead of, or on the scar instead of in the niche pregnancy, cesarean scar topic at 10 weeks, or if you don't make the diagnosis until 15 weeks, it's very difficult to know what to do. I've had a lot of patients who are come to me bleeding at 15 weeks who you look back at their images, they had cesarean scar ectopic. Now they've got full bone, bad accreta, and they're already bleeding. I've counseled patients in that time period to have gravid hysterectomy because they're bleeding so much. I've had a few patients make it to viability or beyond in that group. But knowing an individual's outcome is beyond our abilities at this point. It's, there's not enough cases in the literature. There's not good enough risk paradigm set up yet to be able to counsel patients well, aside from the obvious cases early on. That's super fascinating because this whole 
dialogue about cesarean scar topic seems to be, like I said, just so much newer. Like this was not a discussion when I was a resident. And now, I mean, like I said, so many surgical videos, so much discussion, so much, you know, there is a gray zone and you've seen this develop over your experience. So I'm so appreciative. And MIGs, people and MFMs have to talk to each other now, which is, you know, a little uncomfortable at times. It's not great. It's not great, but we do it. It's what we do for our patients. Let me ask you about like just what have you established in terms of best practices? I know that's an evolving area, but like what's the optimal timing of delivery? Are you giving everyone steroids? Do you put them in the main OR instead of L and D? Do you position them some way? Like, do you have massive transfusion protocol ready? How are you managing all this stuff? Do you do you have uh, IR and backup, like how, how are you managing these patients? Yeah, thanks for asking that. We have a protocol that we put together a couple of years ago and it's iterative, it's updated every year basically to try to adapt to the evolving best practices. But our general approach is that we think our best practice based on the current literature and our experience is to, first of all, to like I said before, to, to have a pretty healthy skepticism that we are going to know about every case and as such to sort of over-prepare even when we're not sure of the diagnosis and even when we think the diagnosis is more mild. I can tell you that within our system in the last 10 years, I wasn't here for the whole 10 years, but looking back at some of our worst cases, they were cases of unclear diagnosis. We're not sure that this patient has placenta creta. Let's try to pull on the placenta. Or this looks like a milder case. Why don't we try for uterine conservation or pulling on the placenta? And those are some of the actual worst cases. And so I think optimal care really starts with low threshold to over-prepare, meaning not having them done at a time when you can have surgical backup, having enough blood available in the room, having the, the team ready, and not sort of just relying on your response to unexpected cases, but to over-prepare even in cases that are a little bit borderline. So that's sort of a philosophical point. What we see these patients throughout pregnancy, we get an ultrasound about every month to take a look at the placenta. In our experience, the placenta doesn't continue to grow into organs. It's kind of established by 20 to 24 weeks as how severe it's going to be. And then depending on the individual's characteristics, we start having them see our anesthesiology team to prepare for that, having to, them see the pelvic surgeons who are going to be involved in their care, getting familiar with our labor and delivery triage in case they have a bleeding event. And so we introduce people to all of the team members who are going to be involved in their care. For patients who have bleeding during pregnancy, we have a pretty low threshold to admit them because our experience is that one bleeding event oftentimes leads to an unexpected delivery. And so we have pretty low threshold to monitor people beyond what we would otherwise monitor people for preview with bleeding. And I've had patients, unfortunately, who spent most of their pregnancy in the hospital. Delivery timing, our approach with that is to usually follow the guideline that's put forward by ACOG, which is 34 and 0 to 35 and 6. Although I will say that even the ACOG guideline says that the optimal delivery time is unclear. And internationally, there are a lot of people who are pushing for later delivery, 36 to 37 weeks in well-selected patients. So in some patients, They've been very stable. They don't have a lot of uterine activity. They live very close to the hospital. Maybe they don't have a placenta previa. They're highly motivated to deliver a bit later. We will aim for 36 to 37 in those patients, but we individualize it. And if it's a sure case and there's anything that the patients are having in terms of uterine contractions, 
bleeding at all, we typically aim for that 34 to 35 and six week window. Just hearing you talk, I mean, the number of cases you've done, the nuance between each case and, you know, how individualized you're able to be with each case, case by case. Like you said, if you're doing a couple of these a year, if you're doing a handful a year, there's no way and, and without an abundance of literature, you know, this is this is where experience can matter maybe as much as in any place in, in medicine and what we do. You know, obstetrics in general, not not as much research as we'd like, but in this area, just hearing you talk, it just and how you'd be able to counsel patients, oh, well, I've been doing this for years, I've seen this many. Well, I'm going to listen to whatever you say as a patient as opposed to like, well, we're just going to sort of see how it goes. I mean, that that alone just is, is sort of, I'm just getting a window into the value and the and the power of having a center like yours. Do you give everyone steroids, you know, based on your experience or is it, I mean, obviously if they have a bleeding event or, you know, uterine contractility or what have you, but... I try to save the steroids up until the time that delivery seems fairly imminent. I mean, certainly if somebody comes in at 28 weeks and has a liter blood clot, we're wondering whether or not they're going to get delivered, they're getting steroids. But for cases, most cases we hold off until a week or two before delivery. And since we're aiming for that 34 to 35 week time period, it's kind of right at that cusp of traditional antenatal steroids and ALPS. And so we are typically administering steroids around that 33-week time period if all is going well in their pregnancy. Yeah, Mark, I mean, I think to add on to what you were saying or to, to throw in my two cents on that, I mean, I think for other types of serious health problems, and I think this is a serious health problem, it's evident that you, like, get a second opinion. It's evident to patients and to doctors that you go to the place that does more of them. You know, my dad got cancer living in rural Minnesota when I was a first-year fellow. And if you, at the risk of offending the University of Minnesota and other healthcare systems, like when you get cancer in Minnesota, you go to Mayo. And I'm not saying Mayo, Mayo as something hyper-special there, but like patients know you get, you have a serious diagnosis to get to the place that has the name for taking good care of patients. No, I, I'm in Kentucky and I spent time working in rural Eastern Kentucky. And we had a rural Eastern Kentucky doc on the show because I think the work that they do is invaluable. And not to, to do anything but to give them credit. But that being said, when you're dealing with things like this that are incredibly rare, and in your case, potentially incredibly catastrophic, volume matters. So in, in, in terms of proximity, are you having folks move to Salt Lake City? Are they, what can you do from the social support? Because one of the big things I've learned working with the population of patients that live remotely and live rurally, access is, you know, you can know the right answer. You can check the right box, but if they're 120 miles down country roads away, it doesn't matter that you know the right answer. And so what measures can you take, are you guys taking in Utah to solve some of those social determinants of health, the proximity issues? Yeah. So thank you for that. The, The best study on how unpredictable delivery can be for patients is, I think comes from Baylor where they show that about 35 to 45% of patients, depending on the year, deliver before their expected delivery time, placenta creta spectrum, and many of them weeks weeks and weeks beforehand. And so it's a particular challenge for those of us taking care of a creta to not only be ready 24-7, but also to not take substantially worse care of our patients who live four or five hours from the hospital. And that's inequitable. If we don't have systems set up to help those patients financially, then we're, then we're being inequitable with our care. It's just, it shouldn't be the happenstance that if you live in my area code that you get much better care than if you live in rural Idaho. 
So what I ask patients, what I will typically do when we make the diagnosis, oftentimes in the middle of the pregnancy, is to have a conversation or a communication with the home doctor and sort of give them the expectations for what sort of things I want to see the patient for and do co-management up until about 30 weeks. And then sometime between 30 and 32 weeks, I ask patients who live more than 45 minutes from the hospital to make arrangements to come to live in Salt Lake City. And so for some patients, that means a family member, like there's a lot of large families in Utah, but for many patients, that's taking up residence at Ronald McDonald House. And we, unlike a lot of other centers that I've heard from, actually have really amazing support for pregnant people at our Ronald McDonald Center. I was going to ask, because I don't think of the Ronald McDonald House as being a place where people stay who are still pregnant. Talk about what makes that special or how, how that came to be. I mean, I think part, it existed prior to my coming onto the scene in Utah. It wasn't something that I had to set up personally. I think it was a realization on the Ronald McDonald House that so many patients, whether it was due to a complicated fetus or a complicated mom, were going to end up in their hands anyways. And so we're not as landlocked in Salt Lake as a lot, you know, as we were in Chicago, where I know that Ronald McDonald had maybe a little bit stricter criteria for who could be there. But we are, I think, just out of good relationships and good luck, had the good fortune of Ronald McDonald being able to house these patients with placenta accretus spectrum or other anticipated fetal and maternal prematurity-related needs. And so it's prematurity is kind of the uh, the key that unlocked our ability to have patients at Ronald McDonald. And as long as they have another adult with them, they're able to stay there. For patients who don't, and a lot of them don't, we our hospital has arranged for basically sliding scale type housing at one of the very local hotels, or we'll set them up an apartment depending on their unique needs. And then, you know, for patients who prefer something different. I mean, I've had patients who do, Ronald, who do other things like stay in their RV at the KOA and it's 20 minutes from the hospital. RV life is, is big in Utah. So That's pretty cool. I mean, we, we've alluded to the education and support these patients need, but like, what are the health outcomes and their quality of life? And is the main morbidity associated with PS? Is it maternal? Is it neonatal? I mean, is the most of the, the morbidity, neonatal morbidity related to prematurity? Like, how does that all work out? Yeah, those are good questions. I What I tell patients is that placenta creta spectrum is a problem that keeps most of us up at night for the maternal morbidity risks. And even in modern cohorts for patients with severe placenta creta spectrum, so closer to the percreta or the FICO3, there's a real risk of maternal death during treatment. And usually that's from bleeding. And so those occur. If you practice placenta creta surgery long enough, you're going to have a maternal death, unfortunately. To reassure patients, I tell them that those risks are generally thought to be less than 2 to 3% for even severe cases of placenta accreta spectrum. There's the risk of ICU admission if you get a massive transfusion. Bladder injury is pretty common, like 20% roughly of cases. Ureteral injury may occur in 5 to 7%. And so there's significant surgical morbidity from a maternal standpoint. The neonatal morbidity is really almost exclusively related to prematurity. And so that's one of the reasons that international colleagues of mine are really interested in pushing deliveries to later. Because thankfully, sort of astonishingly, this placenta that's not living where it's supposed to, and that looks totally nasty in some cases, is actually doing a really good job of taking care of the baby. Fetal growth restriction is not associated with placenta cre spectrum like you might think it might be. Congenital anomalies are not associated as far as we know. And so to me, that's further reason that it's not a placental problem, that it's a uterine problem. But that's my soapbox. 
what I try to give patients reassurance about is that it's our job to figure out that right balance between reducing the risk of prematurity over time and not putting you at too much risk for catastrophic bleeding events. Because the worst cases, the scariest cases, the ones that where we bring otherwise healthy people to the brink of death are the ones where they come in and they're one or two or three liters down already and getting massively transfused before we can even get the baby out or start the hysterectomy. And so, you know, the delivery timing question is an important one to keep investigating for that very reason. We're always balanced, just like my entire job, always balancing what are oftentimes competing maternal and fetal risks. And then I would be totally remiss if I didn't talk about the psychological aspect of this. Like we have all until this point, until maybe three to five years ago, almost completely in the literature ignored the psychological toll of placenta accretus spectrum. And I gave a talk at the SMFM a couple of years ago that said this is the most pressing current issue that's not being addressed in placenta accretive care. We've been so laser focused and rightfully so on keeping moms from dying, keeping cases from getting to the point of massive blood loss that we have not done as good of a job as a field, in my opinion, of addressing the anticipation of anxiety associated with PAS and then post-delivery care for the psychological fallout and long-term outcomes that are really pretty bad associated with this. So I actually did a study at the end of my fellowship with a medical student named Brian Grover that just asked patients how they were doing at six months, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, all the way some to five years and asked them how they were doing from a psychological and health standpoint. And compared to people who were having a third or fourth C-section but didn't have accreta, patients with placenta accreta spectrum who underwent hysterectomy had two to five times the risk of pelvic pain, difficulty with sex, anxiety and depression, postpartum grief and loss, decreased quality of life on quality of life surveys. So it's, it's incredibly important for us to acknowledge that the morbidity does not end if we avoid the ICU or discharge that person home from the hospital. The morbidity continues on well beyond that. And so, and there are other studies out there by Toll that suggest that PTSD-like symptoms are incredibly common in patients. That fits with my experience. There are logistical postpartum problems with coordinating with, you know, sending a person back to Montana where their gynecologist doesn't really know what's happened and having them get postpartum care. It's an incredible challenge and an incredibly underappreciated challenge, I think, taking care of these patients long term. I agree. The PTSD for, you know, in Eurogun about fourth degree tears, anal sphincteroplasty, all that stuff. I mean, there's like lasting sequelae. I mean, interestingly, there used to be this person who was quite active. It used to be called mothers with fourth degree tears, but now it's called something differently to be more inclusive. But she just struck a chord with how many people out there were suffering from PTSD after this traumatic delivery event. And I mean, losing your uterus and having a preterm delivery and living somewhere away from your family for a couple of months. It's a lot of stuff going on. So, I mean, that is incredible. I can see that as being a huge need to study because it's not really well understood. At least you're making the inroads into it. And I wonder if it's also a little cultural. Like, are there international studies looking at this too? Honestly, the best studies on patient experience related to placenta creative spectrum are from Ireland. A person who I've gotten to know pretty well, Helena Bartles, has done a ton of work on this in Northern Ireland to try to assess the patient experience and long-term outcomes associated with placenta creative spectrum. And there, it's the things that their patients say in their qualitative studies are the same things that our patients are saying in Utah. And if we had a larger sample, I feel confident that 
patients in rural Kentucky and patients in Cleveland and patients in suburban Los Angeles would be saying a lot of the same things. And my challenge to people who are taking care of placenta creative spectrum is that if you don't think this is a problem, then ask your patients, like check in with them 12 months from now. And I guarantee that even if you've been the best doctor that you can possibly be, even if you've reduced morbidity to the maximum extent, your patients were still terrified by this problem. I had, you know, a patient who talked about writing letters to her kids because she was worried that she wouldn't make it through surgery. I had no idea that she was going through that. I was confident that we were doing the best possible care that we could do for her. And I was totally blind to the fact that she was so psychologically distraught that she was worried about just coming out the other side. And so we've completely changed the way we address the psychological needs of our patients because we were so moved by our patients and what they told us. They were appreciative of their care and they were also felt like they needed so much more help psychologically and emotionally. You know, it's a testament to you as not just a physician, but also as a person to look at your patients as people because like you clearly have a great deal of talent and brains and logistical and administrative abilities to put a program like this together. But you can forget, you know, there's so many things you just, well, if it just goes well, then everything else is someone else's problem. But take the extra steps and, and to think about it in those terms is something we all don't do as well. I won't speak for others, but I know that there's times when I've been very grateful to have had some patients who were willing to share their experience with me. But you went the step further and asked the questions to others so we could have some data, so we could have a conversation, so we could understand how to change practice, and, and which sounds like you've done in, in Utah. So kudos to you, and your patients are extremely lucky to have you, and we're all lucky to have now the opportunity to hear from you and understand more about not just the diagnosis and management, but the whole, you say spectrum, you know, I think I've just uh, now expanded my definition of the accretive spectrum. It's all the way through the postpartum and, and to the social and emotional side of it too. So um, great work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming, Brett. I mean, every time I hear you talk, it's just learn so much about PAS, but also just how to be a, a better doctor. I'm appreciative of your time both of us are, and that's what just makes us so special. And hopefully our listeners get to glean some insights and wisdom from everything that you've said. So And share some of the inspiration you're giving to us tonight, for sure. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovijinski. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own 
and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.